The Koi Gig Pod. I wouldn't care if Megan Campbell didn't have hamstrings left. If yeah. she just stood on the sideline, she has to play. And subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Keith Wood picked the best 15 that he played against. I'm delighted to say Matt Williams is going to pick the best 15 he coached against. Matt, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning to you. Very good, mate. Uh, Keith Wood um, gave out to us for ruining his day when we uh, we pitched this at him. Um, it looks like you've done a lot of work on this as well. And the players you've coached against, well, they're pretty good. Where, where did you start? What was your, your first team that you kind of took into account? Well, the first thing was I'd never thought of this. I, it had never, ever crossed my mind. And uh, when I, I, I got contacted by Colin, one of the producers, I went, wow, that's a great question. And I actually reached out to some of the guys I worked with over the years. And it took us a long time because there were just so many unbelievably good players. And, and then you'd become like, oh, we've forgotten so-and-so, we've forgotten so-and-so. And and when we started to list it up, what I what I, I did was I listed out some of the players, not all of them, in the positions, and then who was the best and why. But wow, it is uh, I could put an argument for every five other players to be in those positions, and there was just such great quality around because I I was I was really privileged to coach against some absolutely incredible teams uh, across the decade. So uh, yeah, it's a pretty decent list. What was the earliest? team that you coached against that made the list? Well, I've I got to say, so I, I really, um, you know, like a, a good Bush lawyer, I did say who you coached against. So I went right back to the first time I coached. And I started very young. I was only, I was only 33 coaching first grade in Sydney at my old club, Eastwood Rugby Club. And, of course, I coached against uh, the great Randwick sides of that time that were basically Wallaby teams. Um, you, have, you had Wallabies. This would be, this would be like like uh, uh, Young Munster or, or Lansdowne being a Wallaby team and in their second 15 there's three or four Wallabies as well <laughs> like he just it's just off the scale you know and that was David Campuzzi I, I coached against I coached David with the Waratahs a few years later but I coached against David at club level but club rugby in Sydney in the 80s and 90s was a power base of of the Wallabies that won World Cups it was extraordinarily high standard uh, we look back on it now w- w- with with this great understanding that's what drove it there were wallabies everywhere there were great players that couldn't be wallabies the standard was just so so high look they'd come out the Sydney team didn't lose to an international team for 15 seasons so every time a team would tour including New Zealand they would play a Sydney side although they didn't play Sydney very often but you know they beat England they beat uh, a big Wales beat Ireland all of the, the great touring sides were beaten um, by that Sydney side. And that's the height. That's the quality of the competition at the time. It's deteriorated hugely since then, but that's what it was. And so, would Sydney pick the best players from the clubs, even if they were Wallabies? It was kind of like a. But you have to be playing for one of the Sydney clubs. Is that how that worked? Yeah, you had to. Be, you, it was. It was the the best players in the Sydney competition. What we call the shoot shield, right? And um, even though Australia might lose to them a couple of weeks later, the Sydney side boot them. But they had that tradition. They played at some beautiful little grounds that we'd fill up. And, uh, you know, they, they were great players. And, and that was powered again by the Sydney schools and uh, the New South Wales schools as it was then. And, uh, you know, Mark Eller, the three Eller brothers, 
Campuzzi, or like that was around with backline. <laughs> you know, I remember playing sevens against them, and uh, they scored this try. We were leading them. We, we came out as an under twenties team in the sevens comp. We played Ramwick, and we led them seven nil at half time. And they just scored these impossible tries. I remember Mark Eller walking back, just looking at me and goes, "Sorry, mate." Like, and he meant it. He just took us apart. They were, they were true. And, and Mark Eller's not on my list because I didn't coach against him, or uh, Mark had had, uh, had retired. Uh, he retired at 26. Mark's the best player I ever saw, uh, or have ever seen. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Mark retired at 25. So he won the um, Grand Slam with the Wallabies in 84. And in 86, when they beat New Zealand, the last team before Ireland did to beat New Zealand in New Zealand and won at Eden Park, Mark was commentating. And he was 26 years old, and he never pl- he never played in national rugby again, which is just a tragedy, absolute tragedy. Because uh, the coach at the time was a guy called Alan Jones, who was a really highly um, controversial coach. People either loved him or hated him, and uh, Mark wouldn't play for him after the '84 Grand Slam tour, and uh, he never played never played for the Wallabies again. Uh, I'm concerned, Matt, uh, looking at your list here, that you're going to piss off a lot of seriously talented players because uh, the list of players you haven't picked is probably the most uh, impressive that I've seen. Where do you want to start? Oh, mate, we'll start. Let, let's, let's be sensible, unlike how the Irish rugby teams announce their sides and start with number one and move to 15. <laughs> um, you know, why we start at 15 and then change back to one after eight is one of the great mysteries of Irish rugby. <laughs> and then you come to 16, like... Why not just start with one and go to 23? Isn't that the way everyone else in the world does it? So let's start with number one, the great Oz Durant. Do you remember? So, so look, the best team, I, I could have easily picked the Auckland front row side of, of Dowd, Fitzpatrick and Ola Brown. That's the best front row I ever, I ever dealt with. And that was my first year in, that's when I first went into the top line coaching in Super Rugby. In um, I was assistant coach in 96 and then head coach in 97. And that Auckland side is the best side I've ever coached against. Um, the best side, the best side I've ever seen, pretty much anywhere, um, and they were a provincial side. But I, uh, the, the the best loose head I, I ever coached against was Oz Durant, the great South African loose head. He was a giant of a human being, a farmer from the High Veld, huge man. And he, I first met Oz in '96, uh, and he went on and won the World Cup in 2007, which was just an extraordinary piece of longevity for him. But I think what I've, I've what I've tried to do is is these guys change the game in their position. They were just so unique that the game moved had to move around their genius or their gifts. And Durant was just this unmovable object at the scrum that made the, the, any scrum he played in absolutely a weapon. And the size of the man's chest was was just incomprehensible. He was, and and he also had this beautiful uh, farmer's personality. You know, he was a lovely man. He was he was an extrovert, or still is an extrovert. And but but everyone had to adapt their scrummaging because of the size of this guy and the way he went about his game. And he he was uh, an absolute uh, revelation to the scrum. So what the Australians had to do. We had to work on a way to take the scrum down a significant amount towards the ground. So to take away their strength in the south of the scale, especially Oz Durant, the Wallabies and the Waratahs, all of us came up with this theory that if we could get them low enough, they can't use that strength on us. 
Now, there were huge risks in that as far as you fall over and collapse and you give away penalties. And those days, there weren't as many penalties as bent arms. But you used the scrum. The scrum was your launch weapon to get the ball out. And that's what the South Africans didn't want. They wanted a scrummage and we wanted the ball liberated because we had great back lines. And so it changed the whole nature of scrummaging because of this one guy and the, and the way the South Africans leveraged that. You, um, you've Sean Fitzpatrick beside him. Um, I think there's probably a generation who've grown up watching Sean Fitzpatrick on TV as opposed to watching him play rugby. So what was so special about him as a rugby player? Well, Sean, he was, uh, he, he was the first, like, when I say cheeky, that's not the right word. He gave lip to everyone in the whole game, everywhere, for every second, and he matched it up with great skills, unbelievable competitiveness, a, a phenomenal leader, and was a personality, was an extrovert. You're seeing, you see Sean on TV, you know, he's toned down from when he played. He was, and the New Zealanders had this uh, persona as really dour, you know, South Island farmers and they were, they were, you know, they didn't smile. They were the da- most dour of the dour. And and Sean wasn't. Sean was upbeat. They were electric. And that, he also led the modern New Zealand way of playing rugby, which was this extraordinary ball movement, great attack, great play from everyone, a 15-man game. New Zealand didn't play that. Up until, up until that great Auckland side coach by Graham Henry, which Sean was captain of, New Zealand rugby was a very, very different beast, and that's why Australia could dominate. It was really very much an eight-to-nine-man eight, eight to nine man game or ten-man game with Grant Fox kicking. And Fitzpatrick read, uh, led that revolution. Again, that's changed the game, changed the way hookers play. Um, it, he, was, he was a forerunner of hookers like, like Woody that were, were completely involved in the game. Runners, not just uh, there to throw it for a line-out or a scrum. How close was Woody, Matt? Very close. Very, very close. Um I probably, I probably would never hear the end of it if I told him he was the best hooker ever. Basically, so I, I probably had a bit of a sway on it. Some, some red wine might have been spilt over that. But, but look, Keith was a great player, John Schmidt. Who do you? And everyone you could argue to put in. Uh, I, I think the other part was like I didn't coach again against Keith much. It was only a few games where I coached against that great Auckland side twice a year. We'd go away at the beginning of the year for trials together, Canterbury, Queensland, Auckland and New South Wales. We'd go to a, uh, up into Queensland and a thing called the South Pacific Cup and we'd play each other as warm-up games for the Super Rugby. So we got to know these guys really well. We stayed in the same hotels, the same areas. You played games and, and you were much more social after the games. There was interaction with the coaches. And so I got to know them very well and it grew a great respect for them and, and, a, and a great understanding of how brilliant of players they were. Not saying that Keith wasn't. Keith took Leinster apart on a number of occasions when I was assistant coach there back in, in 1999, uh, 2000. But uh, Sean just gets the nod for, for, for me. Is that um, Dad Fitzpatrick, Olo Brown, that, that Auckland team, is, is that kind of the birth of the Auckland Blues and everything that comes from them, that philosophy, that style of play? Like, in many ways, is it? I don't know enough about the the history of New Zealand rugby, but it, it sounds like with Graham Henry's fingerprints there and those players, that it's kind of a foundational text in how we consider, say, the the team that wins the World Cup with Macaw and Carter in London as kind of like that's the high water mark where everything is absolutely perfect, the handling is perfect, they're kicking off both feet, everybody is so sublimely skilled, and that's the absolute peak of what rugby can be. Does it is the birth of that? 
this team? Is that kind of am I over am I overstretching a bit there, or is that it? No, no, not at all. Uh, it's exactly right. And what happened was when we went professional in, after the World Cup in '95, Auckland, which you would see in the NBC, which blue and white stripes, they were still a magnificent side. They won the Ranfurly Shield uh, many, many times. They were a phenomenal side right through that era. But they didn't play that completely that style of play. That Grant Fox as their out half, he was much more a kicking player. Still a wonderful, wonderful player. Only a little man, you know, five foot nine, probably 80, 82 kilos. Phenomenal footballer. But the the metamorphosis of New Zealand rugby being based around uh, eight guys with a kicking game was this Auckland side under Henry and these phenomenal players that they had through through their side, like right through their side, Michael Jones, you know, Jana Loma we'll get to later on, uh, Carlos Spencer, Ronnie Clark, uh, Lee Stenson, I can name the side because it's Zinzan Brook, Robin Brook, Michael Jones. Th- this was a side that contained, you know, probably seven or eight, maybe more all-time great players. And they revolutionised the way New Zealand played rugby. And they were just in an era of really, uh, really good uh, teams in super rugby that had won the World Cup. 87, 90, uh, uh, 91 was Australia, 95 was uh, was South Africa, and 99 Australia. So the Southern Hemisphere was dominating, and all those teams were in Super Rugby. The Auckland team was head and shoulders above that for a number of years, and before Canterbury came through and, and challenged and started to challenge them because of the quality that Auckland put together and revolutionised the the, uh, the the playing of of rugby. Okay, fair enough. Adam Jones is the uh, final member of your front row. What was it about Adam Jones that makes him ahead of like a fairly uh, star-studded list of threes? Yeah, John Hayes, the best lifter in the lineout I've ever seen. Ewan McKenzie, phenomenal player all around. But you, you know, and Ilo Brown, as I said, just just an incredible footballer, and also totally fit. I just think Jones was so outstanding. Um, and the way that the, the team builds around a tight air prop and that whale side from that era that came to dominate for a, for a considerable period of time around the, the 2005 mark, 2004 mark, when Mikey Ruddick won a, won a Grand Slam with them. They built their team around him, and that sort of started this this concept of you can build a team. If you get a quality tight air prop, you can build an organisation around that quality tight air prop. And what... Adam Jones said he wasn't just a scrummager. Like, Oz Durant was a scrummager, pretty much full stop. He did other things, but certainly Adam Jones was a footballer, but he was also a supreme technician that went through on so many levels of the game. And really, you've got to say, a pretty average Welsh team uh, for for a period of time built a a championship-winning side around his ability around the field and in the scrums. And that's uh, that's a fair statement to say you can you can build a side around that one guy, and I, I believe that I know that was uh, Mikey Ruddick's thinking at the time. Uh, you got Paul O'Connell and John Eels as your second row partnership, which is uh, let's face it, uh, world class, right? Uh, like I think we have a fair idea of, of O'Connell. Um, he's ahead of Mark Andrews and Martin Johnson for your number four jersey. Also a pretty star-studded list. So what swung it for O'Connell? Uh, I, have a, I have a lovely story about Paul that I told him once. It's my joke that uh, Paul was injured at, when he was a very young player and I was coaching Island A. We used to come in on a Wednesday, so Paul came in on the Wednesday. I think we are up in Belfast. 
and someone was uh, got hurt in the big boys, and on the Thursday he was called into the senior team and played that weekend. And I say he's the best learner I've ever coached because I taught him everything he knows in one day. <laughs> he, he was just at that day at training, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Mark McCall was my assistant coach. Mark was gone on to win so many great trophies with Saracens. And that night at dinner with Brady Igo, we're sitting there and we all just looked at each other and said, how good is Paul O'Connell? <laughs> like, just in one day, we said, that guy is just head and shoulders above everyone in this place. Like, how good is this guy? And you then saw what Paul went on to do with his career, his leadership, his attention to detail. Uh, you know, over multiple years, he, he, he was just an incredible second rower um, compared to even the greats like Martin Johnson and these other great players. Uh, Paul just had these gifts of leadership but also of incredible skills. That his, his aerial ability to be lifted and catch restarts I think is the best I've ever seen. I mean, there's probably some guys out Matfield. Like, how can you leave out Victor Matfield? And, you know, another great Irish second rower, Malcolm O'Kelly, except for Paul, would be regarded as our best second rower along with Willie John McBride. But because Paul was so dominant, people forget how great Malcolm O'Kelly was. Malcolm was staggering. Malcolm would be the best second row I coached, but he doesn't make that line-up over uh, over Paul. John Eels, obviously, like a totemic figure in Australian history. Yeah, they like a freak. And and a gentleman, six foot seven, can hit a golf ball like a mile, uh, should have played for Australia cricket, could have played uh, top-line basketball, just could do everything. Uh, His nickname is Nobody. What a great nickname because nobody's perfect. And that's John. John is a gentleman off the field. You would not find a more lovely human being. He is a great ambassador. And he was head and shoulders away the best second row I've I've seen in my life. Your back your your back row is also sensationally well balanced. You've got Olivier Mann, Michael Jones, and Zinzan Brook. The players who don't make it are Pinar, Rocky Elson, Richard Hill, Serge Betson, David Wilson, Sean O'Brien, Immanuel Aranordiki, Delalio, Teichman, and Anthony Foley. So I think by virtue of the players we've listed off who don't make it, people can get a sense of the quality there. So Mann, Jones, and Brooks. Brooks, Zinzan Brook. Yeah. Zinzan Brook. Zinzan Brook, Eden Park, 1996. I was assistant coach. Was We, we were at the Waratahs. We go toe-to-toe with them. It's like a phenomenal game. It's like 40-43, and we've played our absolute hearts out. There's about a minute and a half to go. Auckland are behind. They're ramming on our left-hand touch line near the try line, like a metre out. We give away a penalty. Zinzan Brook picks the ball up, and in the most, like a John Elway... Gridiron pass, 65 metres, the full width of Eden Park, into the hands of Jonah Lomu, who touches down on the other side of the field unopposed. And you just look there and go, that's just not fair. You know, like, that's just that's just not fair. The guy could do everything. He dropped a field goal against against uh, the Springboks to win a game. He, he, our, the back row moves that are, are sadly gone from the game now that should come back hopefully we'll come back one day because I was so entertaining, was about him with a ball in hand. He's the most skillful number eight I've ever seen. He is uh, the, the prototype of the tall, athletic, highly skilled number eights 
that we, we want in the game. And he was the best by a mile. Inside of me had Michael Jones, the best seven I've ever seen. Michael was just this incredible athlete with a motor, could do anything on the ball, off the ball, against guys like Simon Portovan, who were great players, but Jones was head above. And Olivia Magna, the great, is the best six I've ever seen, a great French player. Again, would catch the ball in the line out, would act as a second out half in attack, brilliant defender, kicker. You know, the great um, French comeback in, this, in the semifinal in 1999 against New Zealand where they beat New Zealand, uh, people forget that it was Magna at the core of that, creating the breaks, creating the opportunities that Fran- the French wingers capitalised on. But Magna was at the heart of the greatest upset in the history of, of uh, World Cup rugby. Uh, and I coached against Olivia a number of times for Claremont, against Claremont, and uh, also uh, off the field, walked straight in the change room, shake hands, was beaten, heartbroken, uh, just a champion on every front, as they all were, Sinzan Brook and, and Michael Jones, just uh, really wonderful, wonderful ambassadors of the game off the field as well. Uh, scrum half, Matt, it can't have, been e- <clears throat> can't have been easy either. You're looking at names here that, that didn't make it. Matt Dawson, Peter Stringer, Gary Armstrong, uh, Brian Redpath, Fabian Galtier, George Gregan, but you've opted for a, a late great South African as your pick. Yeah, just again, changed the game. The, who, who had six foot four scrum halves? Who had, the, it didn't exist. They didn't have the guys of that size playing scrum half just weren't in the game, and just the way he played, the physicality of them. When I say physically, was he wasn't a, a big man, but he was beautifully athletic. He was lightning quick, pass off both hands, kicking. But his his threat as a runner was what revolutionised that play. Georgie Gregan was the other one that revolutionised because of his ability to take steps before passing. That we now see if you if you look at. Uh, Antoine Dupont. That is what makes Dupont a great player. But you imagine Dupont at six foot four, and that's what, or six foot two, which is what uh, Juste Van Westhusen was. And again, a phenomenal kicker of the game, unbelievable competitor, and and drove South Africa to the '95 uh, well, World Cup winning side. Uh, a case against Juste when he was with um, Northern Transvaal at Super Rugby, and again, just a, an absolute boost of a, of a man uh, to defend because he would literally, his threat meant you had to have three defenders either side of the ruck, always there, so that's six players out of the defensive line, just holding for juice because you could not let him run. If he ran, you'd lose. So you had to, that was your starting point. Okay, you three guys either side, lock in the ruck, make sure he doesn't get the gain line, and we all go forward and make him pass. But then he passes, and we're six defenders out of the game. He, he was um, an incredible man to uh, tactically to try and nullify. And, and you, when you've got guys of that staggering talent, you can't. Uh, you, you can only try and minimise their impact on the game. The list of ad halves who don't make it Michael Liner, Stephen Larkham, Joel Stransky, Johnny Wilkinson, Henry Honnibal, Roland O'Gara, Freddie Michelak, and Andrew Mertens. So it must be someone bloody good, Matt. Who is it? Mate, how could you leave those guys out? <laughs> uh, Carlos Spencer, I guess it's also that what well, Carlos Spencer, the combination that Carlos Spencer did, he, he was this gifted athlete. Like the guy was like, like you know, he was like the cover of Men's Health magazine. He had a six pack, he had shoulders. He was electric over 20 metres, like absolutely electric. And the only player I've seen with ball skills equal to him was Mark Eller. Mark Eller was better. That tells you how good Eller was. But Carlos Spencer used to do this play 
when I was coaching the Waratahs, he would catch the ball from his nine. He would pass to his 12, but he really didn't pass to the 12. You can't believe this, because he would then recatch the pass that he was pretending to give to his 12. He would turn his body completely around and pop the ball from his right-hand side back inside his left-hand shoulder. So let me say that again. He catches, passes to no one, recatches, and puts the ball back behind his back to the left-hand side, at which point Jonah Lomu would hit that ball at 110 miles an hour. It was the most indefensible play I have ever seen. And the first time I saw it, I was sitting with Al Gaffney. And we sort of were silent for a second. And then we both said, did he just pass, recatch, and throw it back over? And I remember our back line was defending. Manny Edmonds was at 10. Uh, and it's just indefensible. You just couldn't – because you, 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 who do you stop? Who do you go to? And then the key, the attack weapon, is Lomu <laughs> at full pace. He could just do things that I've never, apart from Mark Eller, I've never seen anyone do. And even Mark Eller, he had more pace over 100 than Mark. So he would quite often go 80, 90 metres and make breaks, kick the ball both feet, spiral kicks like like Ronan could. Um, Probably never fulfilled his potential at the top level as winning a World Cup, but was... uh, was the most awesome player I've ever seen. I have to say, I, I like I, I remember uh, watching him at the World Cup and like there were between the legs passes, oh, no yeah. look stuff. I I feel a little bit like if he had won a World Cup, the game of rugby would have benefited massively because people stuck it to him. Oh, you're all fancy Dan. You can do it when the big game isn't on the line. I'm like, that's not really what happened here. The, he did not cost him the World Cup. The rest of the team and the systems weren't in place. But if he'd won the World Cup, then every kid in the world would have been encouraged to try the the nonsensical and to try and dream the dream that Carlos Spencer dreamed. And I actually felt like um, a mechanical form of rugby that was a bit soul-crushing, that was a bit South African, that was a bit England, took over as the dominant, well, this is how you win a World Cup, because you get it done, you stick it up the jumper, and you, whatever you do, don't be a fancy dad like Carlos Spencer. Yeah, uh, 100%, mate, 100%. And... That was always the argument. If you watch again, the greatest, the two greatest games of rugby I've ever seen, included involved France. The, the semi final of the eighty seven World Cup where they beat Australia in Australia, and the ninety nine semi final where they beat New Zealand at Twickenham. And I was fortunate to be at both games. But people forget if you watch the first half of that uh, France New Zealand game where New Zealand absolutely dominated and Loma scored some great tries. It was Spencer that was creating all the space. Spencer that was creating all the havoc with Jonah, with Jonah Lomu and, and, and Tana Umanga. He was absolutely incredible. Spencer did not lose that game. <laughs> A number of other people missing tackles and dropping balls cost them that, that that day. And it was a great New Zealand side that should. And if they had got through, I'm pretty certain they would have beaten Australia that day uh, in, in the final. But that's they didn't, and Australia won it. But I, I do agree with you. And Spencer has not, and Lomu, in New Zealand, are not remembered the way they should be because of that day. John Lomu is your number 11, and he's the only uncontested player you have in your team, which suggests that this was the easiest decision you had to make. Absolutely. First first name. I wrote 1 to 15. I said, well, who's in? I said, Lomu. I've never seen anything like him. Uh, I don't think I ever will. He is the greatest winger uh, I, I, you just can't describe what it was like to coach against him. Um, he was 
he was a colossus. You're searching for, for adjectives and verbs to describe what this man could do. The first time I saw him in the old days, they played curtain races before test matches. And usually it was Australian schoolboys versus New Zealand schoolboys. It would start about 1 o'clock and then the main game would start at 3. And that was a very much an a, a Australian tradition. We would always have two games on test match day. He played number eight for, for New Zealand schools this day and you just said, wow, who is this kid? He picked the ball up the base of the scrum and would go 80 metres. He did it four or five times. I was like, my goodness, what a number eight. About two weeks later, he's on the wing for Auckland. You know, and, and you, this guy is, is just steamrolling everyone that he comes up against. And, you know, we saw what he did at the uh, 95 World Cup Poor old Mike Cat, who was a phenomenal player, uh, ha- happened to be the guy that got steamrolled by him. And people remember that it was very unfair on Mike because he was an f- absolutely fine rugby player. And like Jonah did it to everyone, absolutely everyone. We we played them at Auckland, Eden Park in 1999. I'll never forget, I turned Strauss, the great South African captain who had uh, emigrated to Australia, and I got back to play rugby with us. And Strauss, he just says, you know, I'm going to tackle him, follow me as soon as he gets the ball. Where I'm going to be the one. And Straussie was a brave guy, big dude. And sure enough, Lama gets the ball, leading the charge of Straussie straight at him, hurls himself at him. I have this vivid memory of Tian tumbling over backwards as Jonah just goes straight through. Uh, you know, the size of the man, the pace of him, his power, and his ability to get involved in the game. And he's linking, again, as I said before, with Carlos Spencer. He was at his most dangerous when Spencer brought him in from the blind side. So it, it, people think of him on the end of a back line. But when that guy was coming in off 10 or 12, with, with Spencer taking the ball deep to the line, and then he's got his options, he's got a Roney Clark and Lee Stensis in front, or he's got he's got Chana Loma or Joely Mandiri out the back. My God, it was a nightmare. And, and he was... He was phenomenal. And, and again, Jonah, off the field, was this quietly spoken, lovely young man. Yeah. You know, just a tragedy that we lost him so early. 100%. Your centre partnership is Tim Horan and Brian O'Driscoll. I know when we, we talked to Brian about his uh, his heroes, Tim Horan is, is definitely somebody he would name check as an inspiration in terms of uh, being a centre. Again, just to uh, indicate some of the players who didn't make it here Damien Try, Felipe Contepomi, Gordon Darcy, Henny LaRue, Sterling Mortlock, Jason Little, Yannick Josian, and Will Greenwood. Again, uh, Horn and O'Driscoll, I think, is like one of the all time great dream team partnerships. Yeah, it tells you a bit about Australian rugby at the time, too, that you could have, uh, you know, Horan and um, uh, Jason Little, who were a great partnership, and Sterling Mortlock. Uh, you know, three great centers with the Australian three-quarter line now. Like, wow, he's just just not even in the top seven or eight in the world. But we, we were gifted, and Timmy, um, you know, he's got a great. He's like me. He's got Irish ancestry. His family's from Tipperary. Was was phenomenal over many years. So Tim, you know, first uh, they won the Blues like Cup in '89 when when Tim and Jason were, were kids in the centers. I think they were 19 in the centers. And Tim and then Tim had a horrific knee injury. Came back, won a World Cup in 1991, won a World Cup in '99. So yeah, you know, over a 12 year career with the Wallabies was was staggering. I coached against Tim for New South Wales many, many times against Queensland, which is Munster versus Leinster, the blue versus the red, and and the same thing. You only had to one win one game each year, and that was against Queensland. If you didn't win Queensland, you were in a lot of trouble. And they were a great side with Horan and Little and Earls. It was a, it was 
the, you know, an unbelievably good Queensland side. And again, Tim could change a game uh, in the in in a split second. He revolutionised the way that inside centres play. Tim was not was very athletic guy, very powerful, but um, was not a tall guy. A bit like very very similar to Brian in in physique, probably a little bit a bit uh, bigger than Brian in in his mu- muscularity. But Tim could accelerate so unbelievably over fifteen meters and use his footwork to get to shoulders of the defenders, and then he also had a pass. But Tim also, the break that Tim had was was staggering. I think the other thing with Tim was he was beautifully complimented by by Jason as an outside. Jason was tall and rangy, a bit like Shane Horgan, um, where, where Tim was this more compact, brilliantly fast player. I actually thought, we, thought of playing Brian at 12 for a while when, when Brian was very young back in, in 99 because he reminded me so much of... Of Timmy Horan, but but you know Brian's ability to go on the outside was just so good that you, you know he was a natural outside centre. But it did cross my mind at, at the time. Okay, Campese, you you mentioned it at fourteen with somebody. Um, for some of our younger listeners who uh, might not be utterly familiar with Campese's range of tricks, a little bit like what you were talking about, Carlos Spencer. There was kind of a a preternatural ability to understand where other people were without looking, or it was kind of a sixth sense about where they were. Yeah, um, he's a bit, he's close to the two best players I ever coached were Brian and David, and both of them uh, had a six six sense. And Campo, firstly, he was magnificently fit and magnificently skilled for the amateur era. He only lasted two years. He was in the professional era. He won the ninety one World Cup, um, but he was playing. He played for the Wallabies in in the Grand Slam in eighty four when he was ninety when he was only 19. David could kick the ball 70 metres both feet. He's the best punter of a ball I've ever seen in my life. He And, and he practised. He's also the best trainer. Trained his heart out. He is electric speed. He did a goose step. He was the first person to bring the goose step in. Again, change the game. Footwork that we now see uh, regularly. That He was the first person to, to do that. He, he, he literally invented it, brought it into the game of rugby. Scored tries. Um, to give you an example, you, you take and you measure how many times people touch the ball in the game. So your nines and tens and your twos and your eights touch the ball more than anyone else. You come to the end of a game and Campuzzi would touch the ball more times than everyone on the team except for the, the halfback. He got involved from the wing like like no one I've ever seen. He revolutionised the position. And again, until Jonah came up, uh, he, he was considered the greatest player in the world. He was for many years the greatest player in the world, greatest attacking player. If, you, if a young people go and Google up his uh, tries, and they still they t- they stand the test of time. He is a, a staggering, staggering athlete. And the last one is sorry, were you going to? No, I was just on that last one. Like I think Keith Wood picked Jason Robinson, maybe, but that was on the on the wing possibly. But Matt, you've gone with uh, Robinson mentioned there at fullback at fifteen. But you've got like the, the list of names again: Latham, Montgomery, Wilson, Poitrino, Gervin Dempsey, Rob Carney, Joubert. Uh, but you've opted for an All Black as your as your fullback. Christian Cullen. Um, when Christian Cullen came, signed for Munster, I first heard and went, "Wow, that's that's a phenomenal signing." Christian Cullen, uh, at his peak in New Zealand, I was coaching Super Rugby, so he was uh, playing for Wellington and also with Tana Rumunga in that side. Uh, he, he was a freak. He was an absolute freak of nature, a very slight man, 83 kilos, yet he could bench press almost double his body weight. He, he, he was just this power athlete that was slight, 
unbelievable acceleration, great kicker of the ball, but it, it, his footwork was staggering. If you kicked to him and you didn't have a kick-chase line that was absolutely disciplined and organised and brilliant in their tackling, he'd go 100 metres. There there's a great clip up. It's actually against a... a uh, does the rounds often uh, when Christian Cullen's name come up of him scoring a try against the Waratahs in the Sydney Football Stadium. Now, in my defence, he, goes, he takes the ball on his own trial line. He goes 100. I'd ask everyone to look at the score. We were leading 45 to 12 at the time. And we did win the game. We did win the game, which is quite often not remembered by people when they text me, well, you coach when he scored that try? And I was. But we did win the game. But that's what Cullen could do. In, in those days, we would tour South Africa together with the New Zealand side. So the two, two provincial sides from Australia, one from New Zealand, would go to South Africa, and we'd stay in the same hotel for two weeks. So you got to know these guys really well, and you got to watch them train and got to watch them uh, uh, as they conduct themselves. Cullen, uh, in a generation that had Jeff Wilson and, uh, and, and Lomu, was a staggering, staggering athlete. His star was only brief. That's the only thing I would say about Christian. When he, he, he didn't last the, the length of time of other players... But it was uh, it was an incredibly bright star. It's definitely one of the great uh, sporting tragedies that he didn't get to fulfil his time at Munster and show glimpses of what he was capable of. Because I know it, it rankers with him um, that people here don't think of him the way you guys do think of him because we didn't really get to see that in person and um, it kind of makes it all the more sad, really, because like that yeah. Munster team was crying out for somebody like that to be added to to the mix. Irish rugby was crying out for it, and you look what Dougie Howell did when Howell did when he got there. Uh, you know, Christian was uh, was just a staggering athlete. You know, and I'm, I have huge respect for Dougie. Like he's an unbelievable player, but but Christian at his best was 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 in my opinion, you know, a, a couple a step above, just slightly above Dougie. But you know, Dougie was a legend. Christian would have been uh, phenomenal for the game in, in Ireland. And it was, uh, it was really sad. I fell for it because he's also a really lovely bloke. He's a you know, down-to-earth guy and he, he, he wouldn't go to any team without wanting to do his best. And he certainly didn't get that opportunity, not through anyone's fault, to, to show what he could do. Matt, that 15 is a match for any team in the history of the world. It is a phenomenal uh, team that you put together. Thanks so much for doing the work for us. Thanks uh, for asking me. It was, uh, it was good fun. I really yeah. enjoyed it. A brilliant thought experiment. The best 15 that Matt Williams coached against there. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent moves.